Welcome to The Nature of Florida, the Sunshine State's only podcast dedicated to its wild and natural places and the fight to preserve them. I'm your host, Oscar Corral, a two-time Emmy Award-winning filmmaker and journalist. I've dedicated much of my career to making films about environmental issues. Tune in each week to hear from a broad range of voices, from scientists to surfers, activists to mermaids, who are working on the front lines to save what's left of Florida's natural beauty and its wildlife. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of The Nature of Florida podcast. Today, I want to give a warm welcome to Florida State Representative Anna V. Escobani. Anna is a rising star in Florida's Democratic Party and a tireless advocate for progressive causes around the state. She represents a district in the Orlando area, and she pushes for better health care, education, government accountability, and for the purposes of this podcast, better environmental policies. On her website, she says dysfunction and failed policies rule in Tallahassee, and that corruption is rampant with a never-ending culture war and a disregard for science. Her website goes on to say she stands for integrity and decency. Welcome, Anna. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So, Anna, I've, I've met you once before, and I've, I've had the opportunity to um, ask you some questions before. And although your, your website is kind of thunderous in terms of its critique, I sense that you have a, a kind of... Um, irrepressible optimism. And I, I want to ask you how you do that. <laughs> I, I, I actually totally do. I mean, I don't think you could live in Florida as a progressive unless you have optimism and unless you have hope. And what grounds me every single day is what, what potential we have in this beautiful state to protect environment to protect our people and have shared collective prosperity for everyone. I know it's possible in our state, but the politics have been co-opted by the biggest special interest and by those who are more power hungry than thoughtful to what it means to share and build power. So that philosophy for me, it's very values driven. And that's what keeps me focused. It keeps me ready for election. It keeps me committed every day in some of these dark moments in the legislature when bad bills are being pushed forward. It's what gives me the motivation to stand up with my microphone by hand and you know ask those tough questions and hold my colleagues accountable and try to tell the story. Because I think when more Floridians understand what is happening in places like Tallahassee, they get outraged. And they get motivated to do something about it. And I want to be there to help facilitate that change. I get the sense that in Tallahassee, we have one party rule. So a single party rules the state. And there's really uh, very little checks on, on the powers of that party because there's no filibuster, for example, in Florida. So the minority party, which is the Democratic Party in this case, and you're a member of that party, um, is often left trying to figure out how to stop these uh, a lot of these policies from being passed. Um, but yet, that doesn't stop you from advocating. Tell me about the importance of not feeling defeated and being defeatist and continuing to advocate for things you believe in, in those conditions. It's an inside outside strategy, right? So you do what you can on the inside to uh, impact change, to stop a bill or amend a bill, to build those relationships with your colleagues across the aisle. So at least they still listen to your concerns. They don't always act on it, but you have a clear line of communication to try to reduce the harm of policy proposals. 
Well, at the same time, you're working with the community groups, you're working with folks on the ground, and you're using your bully pulpit to, to amplify them. So whether it was Nestle water bottling company uh, trying to get the permit from uh, the local Swanee Water Management District to pump endless amounts of water a day, in that case, not only did we work with the community groups to, to join them in their advocacy, direct more people towards them, but I sent multiple letters. You know, I used my bully pulpit to amplify this issue to a national audience. Same thing on the net metering fight. Uh, you know, I'm one of the only lawmakers who's willing to call out FPL. And to the point where I did an amendment to change the name of that bill to the Florida's People Lose Act. And my point in doing that was to highlight this is an FBL priority. It's not in the best interest of Floridians. And, you know, things got a little contentious on the House floor, but I'm proud to be able to, you know, amplify those moments so that if you're watching Tallahassee for the first time, you, you share my outrage, but you're also not demoralized because you do see people who are fighting for you. And I do think it's that inside outside strategy that is the key to our success, because not only can that be implemented during legislative session to try to like I said earlier, you know, stop or amend these bills. But that's also what translates to political action on the campaign trail. And the incredible thing about environmentalists is that it's not one party. You know, there's Republicans, Democrats, no party affiliation voters who care about Florida's water, who care about clean energy and energy security and climate change, who care about their parks and their green spaces. And so uh, it's so important to work within those coalition spaces because that's what we can that's what we can really inspire and leverage to try to actually have an impact in places like Tallahassee. I'm really glad you brought up that point that across the aisle in the Republican Party, there are, are many members who are also conservation minded and environmentalists. Um, and in Florida to get something done, as you mentioned, it's important to form coalitions across the aisle and and be on the same team for a cause, even if you're not necessarily on the same party, in the same party, correct? correct. Um, so to give a little bit of background on what you mentioned before, you mentioned FPL, Florida Power and Light. Florida Power and Light is the largest utility in Florida, and they are owned by Nextera Energy. Nextera Energy is the largest utility in the United States. They're extremely powerful, um, and they are very influential. And this year, they went out of their way to advocate for a bill that many critics say will destroy rooftop solar in Florida. In other words, it will have the result of decimating or can have the result of decimating the rooftop solar industry in Florida at a time when we are trying to turn a corner uh, for climate change in order to avoid the worst results of an increasing and a warming climate, especially in Florida, which is very vulnerable to rising sea levels. Um, Anna, tell me about the the bill, what happened with that? Give me a little bit of background. What, 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 what happened with that bill and what was the result? Well, folks also need to re realize just how powerful of a political force Florida Power and Light is. It's one of the largest contributors of political donations in the state. And back to this point about it being bipartisan, they, they contribute to Democrats and Republicans. I mean, they're always going to contribute more to the majority party. But to be clear, FBL has hired past Democratic Party chairs to be their lobbyists. They've, they've hired former Democratic representatives to be their lobbyists. And so it's um, a, a, a system that transcends party lines and their influence. And you saw that 
with the votes in every committee and on the Senate and House floor, where there were some Republicans who voted no and some Democrats who voted yes. Um, and so this bill was pushed through the process. I have to be candid about this. You know, the only people who stood in support of this bill in committee for the public were basically front groups for FPL. Uh, there was one former public service commissioner who um, is very much, you know, in the pocket FPL. And then there was uh, a fake seniors organization that is funded by FPL. I mean, you just can't make this kind of stuff up, right? Meanwhile, those on the opposing side are small business owners, are environmentalists, are Republicans. We have to remember that after the 0809 recession, a lot of construction workers um, and, and owners went into solar because the uh, Obama administration was putting money towards clean energy jobs. It's one of the fastest growing sectors in our state, whether it's um, renewable energies or energy efficiency. And so this is not a field dominated by Democrats. You know, these are just, these are hardworking folks that have created a, um, a successful business model that Floridians want more of. And yet their voices were ignored, you know, when it comes to the final votes. And the bill was amended throughout the process, but it's still very harmful. Um, there's still a concern that's going to decimate the rooftop solar industry. And all because FPL doesn't want you to save money on clean energy. They want you to be tied to them as a regulated monopoly. So the intention of FPL is, is very, is very greed-driven. And folks should realize this is an investor-owned utility company. Their job is to make money. And uh, the same company has lines to funding three fake ghost candidates in different state Senate races. And of course, all three of the Republicans who won those races voted yes on this bill. Wow. So uh, NextEra Energy, which owns FPL, is, um, is pouring money into the state of Florida not to help people get solar rooftop or rooftop solar to produce power for themselves, but to stop that industry, which is, uh, from what you're telling me, a budding, growing job factory in Florida. In other words, it's yeah. a growing tech industry in the state of Florida to combat climate change and to help people produce their own energy. But the largest utility in Florida um, apparently doesn't want competition from rooftop solar. So they have stepped in to try to maintain their monopolistic um, hold on people's ability to produce power. Incredible. Um, so, so the rooftop solar industry in Florida is just one example of many of the environmental battles that are being fought in the state capital. Um, and there's other, there's, there's many, many more. And for example, um, let's talk a little bit about, about the springs and water and the Everglades in Florida. Uh, you come from a district that is near some really beautiful springs. Uh, near, in or near your district, you have uh, uh, Rock Spring and Kelly Park. Yeah. You have Volusia Blue Spring, which is uh, a haven for manatees in the winter. You have Wakaiba, Wakaiwa, Wakaiba, I always pronounce that wrong. Um, <laughs> you have De Leon. You, you have some beautiful springs in your area. And, uh, and from what I understand, you visited those springs before and you enjoy them. Tell me about the importance of of protecting Florida's water and what's happening at the state level right now? Well, it seems like anyone who wants to pump water is getting that permit to do so at, at ridiculous rates. And I, I think the other part of the challenge we have, especially in central Florida, is mass development where we just can't keep up with the growth. And that's kind of like the elephant in the room, honestly, is that Florida is so driven 
by short-term economic gain, like the mass development of subdivisions, uh, these, you know, uh, white picket green lawns that have to use fertilizer to maintain their quality. Um, meanwhile, we don't have enough water to sustain this. We just don't. And while there's a huge growth of, of people moving into Florida and of new developments, which is decimating wetlands and, you know, building up, you know, less dense neighborhoods that require more driving in a place that has no public transportation, um, we also see the ag industry really just be domineering throughout the legislative process, especially sugar, um, alongside, uh, you know, issues around um, uh, water bottling companies, as I mentioned earlier, Nestle, which it, it reminds me of the net metering fight because it's, you know, we could just throw on the faucet and get water, right, at a much cheaper rate than buying it bottled. But these companies want, they, they, they mark and advertise towards you the model that makes them the most money. And it's the same thing with net metering. It's like each one of us should be able to harness the sun and you know, produce energy from that. The sun touches us every single day. And yet basically what FPL is doing is saying, we don't want you to have that power. Only we can harness the sun, even though it's a resource that each one of us feels and sees every day. Um, and so the struggle for me when it comes to water is that Florida will put money towards water projects, but we're not actually getting to the cause of the problem. We're not holding polluters accountable. We're not strengthening our, our BPMs. We're, we're, we're doing the bare minimum and saying that this is good enough when it's clearly not. And when it comes to our water management boards, they're not protecting water. They're, they're approving permits left and right despite huge local public opposition and backlash. And so, you know, we need a lot more courage in these, in these agencies. And, I, and it's really unfortunate because I know there's good people at FDP who care about these issues. I mean, I work with our local FDP folks all the time when it comes to um, wastewater issues and, and uh, lift stations failing and, and, you know, trying to hold these developers accountable. But at the end of the day, the, the agency heads, they, they are appointed by the governor. Exactly. So they are going to respond to what the governor's agenda is. They're not going to stray away from that. And I do think Governor DeSantis uh, uh, is known as like a water governor, but it's more about funding water projects and like standing next to the Everglades and saying, you know, we're putting money towards these projects versus what are we doing to actually stop the source? It's really frustrating just the power of these uh, special interests. And that's what we're up against every day is like helping to persuade lawmakers to be brave enough to challenge them. I want to go back to your point about the boards, the water management district boards. That's, <clears throat> that's so important because those, those agencies and FDEP are stocked with very competent, uh, very honest, very hardworking scientists who right. know what's happening and know what's, what, what the problem is. But the decisions at all of those agencies are made by uh, people appointed by the governor, in this case, Governor DeSantis, or maybe some holdovers from Governor Rick Scott. And so you have this, this situation where the environmental consequences of, of all these policies are being ignored. 
And, and the people who are appointed by the governor are often people who are benefiting from consumptive use of water. They're people who work in agriculture and development. Um, so the people who are deciding whether, whether to grant these massive permits are people who work in industries that are benefiting from these policies. So I, I don't understand how that situation can continue forever before we see massive destruction because the right. people who are on these boards making the decisions don't know anything about science. They don't know anything about, and, and not only do they not know, they, they don't care. They, they're not, that's not how they make their living. That's not what they were educated in or trained in. These people are there to make as much money as possible and to continue this. And so in the case of Nestle, Nestle, um, which is now they've sold their water bottled water business to another entity, but they paid $110 to be able to pump a million gallons a day from Jimmy Springs, $110. That's pocket change. That's, that's the kind of money a, a, a lobbyist pays to take up, you know, a politician out to lunch <laughs> at a restaurant in Tallahassee. And, and you mentioned, and, and you mentioned the lobbyists. I have to tell you the story. When I started going after Nestle and calling them out for that permit request, sure enough, the lobbyist of Nestle is asking for a meeting with me and I met with him and it was a pretty, you know, tense conversation, but for them, so much of this is about like, it's about coercive behavior towards anyone who challenges them. So you shut that down immediately. You intimidate them, you harass them. I've already been the target of smear campaigns from FPL. So that's how they operate. That's their MO, right? That if you challenge us, then we're going to embarrass and try to shame you, right? And then on top of that, when you look at... Um, uh, the actual like science and the, the data, they'll produce their own science, you know, and, and then they'll, they'll put marketing dollars behind it. And when I'm in Tallahassee, I don't have cable in, in Orlando, but when I'm in Tallahassee, the place that we stay has cable. So I'll put on CNN while I'm working and just, you know, listen to the background, the number of Nestle commercials last session and now the number of FPL commercials, I, I mean, it's just, it's so funny. It's so funny. And it's, it's all it's about incredible. branding for them. I remember arriving in Tallahassee this session for, uh, for a screening for the documentary that we did that you attended. And I appreciate very much that you attended that screening of the like, documentary, The Fellowship of the Springs, which is about the challenges Springs are facing. Anyway, I drive, I fly into Tallahassee, I get off at the airport and greeting me is a huge advertisement on how, how beneficial phosphogypsum waste from phosphate mining is and how you can recycle it and do many things with this oh toxic waste. Oh my God, that is and I, crazy. And I thought to myself, yeah. wow, what, what a well-timed advertisement for phosphogypsum waste. As we know, there's a disaster going on in the Piney Point um, phosphogypsum stack in the Tampa area right now that right. last year leached tens of hundreds of millions of gallons of toxic water into Tampa Bay. And so now that industry is trying to tout the benefits of having these great stacks of gypsum in your backyard. <laughs> and I, I just thought that was, that was hilarious. And, but, but I don't know. I mean, is it true? You know, there's questions about that. I mean, maybe they're, you know, they, they, they produce this research and take out these ads to, to cast doubt and to right. create doubt among people. And, and it created right. doubt even among me. I thought, hmm, is this true? Is fossil right. gypsum waste waste actually beneficial? It, yeah, it's, they, it's they have waste. no idea what to do with it. You know, like and and there 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 is research uh, towards trying to you know reduce the waste happening. But these gypsum stacks across Florida, I mean, once it becomes a gypsum stack, there's 
yeah, I know there's been some efforts to try to change one into like a golf course or something, but I mean, it is so environmentally degrading. And of course, Mosaic is a very large political contributor as well. Time and time right. again. That's right. They are. <clears throat> going back to going back to your, your website and what I read, you said uh, Tallahassee is anti-science. Um, and I find that to be kind of a sad statement because Tallahassee can find many solutions to their current problems with good science. And yeah. uh, oftentimes it doesn't have to cost, you know, uh, tens of billions of dollars. It can be something reasonable. Um, tell me about that mood of anti-science in Tallahassee and how you navigate that, Anna. So it's such a great question. It's not, it's not even just about what, what data do we rely on to make decisions, but that is an important part of the conversation. But even a, a staff analysis, which is supposed to be objective, can be influenced by special interests who might have a relationship with the staff director and with staff. And so they're going to get their messaging into that staff analysis. You also have situations where there's just a blatant attack on higher education. And this session was a clear example of that. There were last minute amendments to bills to change the tenure process in our schools, to change the accreditation process in our schools. Uh, we saw last year the censorship of UF professors who wanted to testify on a lawsuit challenging the governor's uh, voter suppression bill. And eventually they were able to testify, but it was only after like national outrage and the UF president resigning and that, you know, that outcome took place. And there's still a lot of hesitation by higher ed institutions to challenge the legislature because they need the resources. You know, at the end of the day, these are public universities that need the state to fund them. So if they speak up on some of these other issues, there's a fear that their funding will be at risk. And on the second last day of session, there was a last minute amendment uh, to a conforming bill for the budget that essentially would target higher ed institutions with House Bill 7, which is the anti-CRT bill. And, and, and it's so unreal because critical race theory and those concepts are taught in higher ed institutions. They're not taught in K through 12. So now you're going after higher ed. And, and let, me, let me be clear on this. If you a student, for example, or a professor feel like this subject matter is making you uncomfortable, you could go to a court of law or the board of governors, which is appointed by the governor or a standing legislative committee. And if just one of those entities agrees with you, that school's funding would be withheld. Their performance funding would be withheld. Like that is a direct assault on higher ed institutions. And on the First Amendment. And on the First Amendment. And it's, and it's just shocking to me. And I felt like I was in this like, you know, twilight zone, like asking Randy Fine, Representative Randy Fine, because he was the one who, you know, carried this language. And I, and I asked him point blank. I said, okay, so... If a court of law says, no, this university did not break HB7, but then I go to the legislature and y'all say differently, does that, does, what, what opinion stands? No answer, whatever, the, the, any, any opinion stands. Like, I mean, it was such bad policy and that is now going to be in Florida law. 
And so when I say that we're anti-science, it's not even just issue-based. It's like this collective mentality of attacking higher ed, um, which is so disappointing. And if you care about top talent, if you care about the Space Coast workforce, if you care about manufacturing jobs, you care about state employees, then you should support our higher ed institutions. But it's been the complete opposite the last five, six years. Anna, let's take a step back. I want to look at the big picture. What is Florida facing with climate change right now? Oh, disastrous consequences. I mean, we're a peninsula, so we're surrounded by water. We already see the impact in, in, in parts of South Florida. My brother lives in Miami. And so, you know, there's a, a, a clear indication of when some parts of Miami just are not accessible anymore. And of course, we have to be clear about this. It impacts every person, but those who impacts in a more negative way are going to be poor people. It's going to be folks who work in the sun, like our farm workers and construction workers. It's going to be folks who um, don't have uh, the ability to harden their homes. And of course, climate refugees, which we already saw from Puerto Rico with Hurricane Maria, folks coming to Florida in droves for help. And of course, the Bahamas with Hurricane Irma. And so, I mean, my God, look at the panhandle right now with with fires and with Hurricane Michael. You know, these are the consequences of not taking action on climate. And so we're in a very difficult, difficult moment in, in global history, but in Florida history. And the apathy and the lack of attention is shocking to me. And it was really interesting on the House floor, you know, there was a, a resiliency bill and Representative Ben Diamond tried to add amendments for issues around climate and issues around, you know, stopping pollution, stopping um, uh, the production of, of, uh, of carbon and, and trying to make this a more holistic package. And the response the bill sponsor in her opposition to those efforts was, we're not here to politicize this. You know, we just want to get real work done. It's like, that is such a, a, a sad talking point. We're not trying to politicize this. This is what we need to do to actually have an impact. But their pivot to, you know, ignore us is just to say that we're politicizing the issue, which is a very common, like, you know, pivot theme we've seen from conservatives when they don't like something we're saying they just try to pivot and project to something else. So it, it, it further demonstrates how we have to stay focused and we cannot get distracted. And oh, I mean, I, I think I read a report from the United Nations that sea levels are expected to rise by a certain amount in 2100. I think it was like four feet, three or four feet. If the sea rises by three or four feet because of climate change, um, many parts of, our, of the biggest urban areas in Florida um, will become uninhabitable. Uh, they will not be, there will not be roads, uh, roads will be underwater. And so will a lot of the infrastructure that we need to live there. Um, that includes parts of Tampa Bay, of Miami, of, of the West Coast, like Naples and Fort Myers, uh, of the Keys, the Everglades, um, and up the coast, you know, Fort Pierce and, 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 and Vero Beach, et cetera, et cetera. I think people like to pretend that that's going to happen, you know, at some far off point in, right. in the future that they're right. not going to have to worry about it. But imagine, imagine the nihilism involved in the mentality of thinking that, well, my grandkids, cause that's, that's who we're talking about. Oh, my grandkids will deal with that. And, you know, and, and when they ask what we, what we did about it, what we could have done about it, um, we'll say nothing. 
I mean, right. we'll say, you know, what, what are they going to, what are people going to tell their grandkids? Um, uh, you know, and, and I, I want young people in Florida to understand what's happening right now, because what's happening is that we have uh, the, the leadership generation in the state basically ignoring climate change and acting like it's not going to happen. And they're, they're trying to take initiatives to prepare for it and, you know, mitigate for climate change. You can't stop the ocean from rising. It's a limestone state. The water's going to come from somewhere. If it doesn't come over an embankment or over some sort of seawall, it's going to come from below, from the limestone. Absolutely. So, so Florida, Florida is really in a, in a tight spot. And, and I think it all, it all goes back to the leadership in Florida and the priorities and what you mentioned before, which is greed. And so how greed and, and the incredible marketing campaign pushed by, by corporations that are driven by, by greed and profit um, blind people to the possibility that part of their state and maybe their homes could be partially underwater in less than a hundred years. Um, and so there are solutions to this, one of which is rooftop solar, <laughs> but Absolutely. we, we start the broken record again. Uh, you know, greed has prevented now has made it much more difficult for people to put rooftop solar in their homes. As an update to this podcast, between the time of this interview and the time of publishing, Governor Ron DeSantis vetoed the bill that critics say would have crushed the rooftop solar industry in Florida. So it did not become law in 2022. What do you foresee in the future, Anna? What do you think, uh, what do you think is going to, is going to happen? Well, we need to make these issues political issues. And I try really hard by, you know, breaking the ivory tower and explaining to my constituents what this looks like and how this is operationalized. You know, when we talk about special interests, sometimes it's hard to understand. It sounds more theoretical than real life. So that's why I get specific and I talk about, you know, how F- what FPL does. I talk about what Nestle and Mosaic do what the ag industry does. Like I'm not shy to say those things because I think if you only talk in, in like, you know, messaging points, like theoreticals, people can't grasp it. When you tell them, look how much money FPL gave and look at what this bill does, right? Like, I think that further amplifies um, for the everyday person, including young people, not only what's at stake, but why this system is corrupt, why it's broken, and what can I do about it? Um, I, I haven't, you brought up a really important point, young people. You're, you're a young woman. You've risen fast in party politics in Florida. You're doing well. You've made a name for yourself, and you're going to continue to make a name for yourself. How did you get turned on to these important issues and to this kind of, um, this kind of priority in your, in your young life? What, 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 what drove you to, to pay attention to these issues and to want to get involved? Oh, I love this question. So I grew up as a working class kid, as a daughter of immigrants. My parents came from different parts of Iran, but met in Orlando. So we didn't have a lot of money to go on vacations. I think my entire childhood, before my mom passed away, we only went on two vacations and they were in Florida. They were very short. Um, And so I, I never really had, you know, I didn't even know how to swim until I was much older because I never had a pool. You know, it wasn't something that my family had access to, but what we did have access to were parks. We go to our County parks every weekend and, you know, scoot around or uh, play football, whatever. We go to the beach a lot. And so some of these experiences that are just so natural for Floridians, you know, we take, we kind of take for granted, right? 
Um, and I remember actually going to Wakaiva Springs in fifth grade because every fifth grader gets to go um, in, in Orange County. It's like part of our uh, curriculum and just you know, being really taken aback by its beauty. And um, I love I love animals. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a vegan. And I just think that we got to do better for the little critters who call Florida home. And so it was a lot of those motivating factors that when I decided to run for office, it's funny, not taking money from utility companies and sugar was like a no brainer for me. Like I, I it wasn't even something I had to be talked into. I just knew, cause I remember FPL getting involved with the solar ballot amendment and like funding the the bad one and so I was like why do I want to take money from these companies like these are really bad actors like it wasn't even like a a debate in my head and it was so funny because when I got to Tallahassee surprise surprise like that type of perspective is like very controversial you know and and I got in trouble like from Democratic caucus members who said I was embarrassing them and you know, my attitude towards groups like AIF was problematic to the caucus, all this kind of stuff. And so I really have had to build a lot of courage, you know, these last three years to be myself and uh, to stay with my values. And so that's kind of, you know, why I do this work. And it's what keeps me grounded. It's not easy, but it's the right thing to do. We need more elected officials who are in, in it for the right reasons versus, driven by some perception of power that is not shared, is not collective, and is short-term. I want to build long-term power for my communities, and this is how you do it. Some people have labeled you as kind of a, the, the voice for youth in politics in Florida, somebody who speaks from a young perspective. You're young yourself. You connect with younger people. How important is it to reach younger voters and, uh, and, and, and advocate for them and, and speak for them? It's incredibly important. Um, I take a lot of pride in helping to, as a millennial, I also think part of my responsibility is to be the connector for multiple generations. And so we help folks that, you know, their first time getting political is supporting us. And they they have, you know, uh, identify as Gen Xers. So they, they um, contribute a lot to our state and our community, but never politically. And we help them be those first timers, right? All the way to the Gen Zer that is super savvy on social media, but doesn't know how a bill becomes a lot or doesn't understand how quickly things change. Like I had some folks over the don't say gay bill, for example, they thought an amendment that a Republican filed had passed. And I had to explain to them, no, actually it didn't pass. You know, just because a Republican files an amendment doesn't, doesn't mean it just sticks. Like they have to vote on it. So, so I kind of do what I can also kind of be that that eskimami like kind of help folks you know like navigate the process so they build political power themselves and and then we're just there to compliment them along the way um and so yeah we take a lot of pride in being that connector for sure i've heard the term governor eskimani uh <laughs> kicked around a bunch over the last year or two uh tell me what you want for yourself and for the state in the future and i'm talking about your political ambitions what do you want to do well, I wish I had a crystal ball to tell you. Um, I have to remind folks, especially especially supporters that you know want us to make these giant leaps, whether it's to Congress or something like governor, that we, we have to, we, we, you know, in Farsi, there's a, a phrase, yavash, yavash, yavash. It means baby steps, baby steps, baby steps. 
I know that there's a temptation to just like jump to the top. Um, but there's also reality where as a young woman of color, I don't get more than one shot. It's harder for women and women of color to jump back after a loss. And I think Florida has a long way to go in building infrastructure for strong Democrats to win, which is why, you know, I've also launched a voter registration organization last year that is um, training young people to do community outreach, to organize in their campuses and to register people to vote because I want to help build that bench. But I also realized that we can't just, you know, jump to the top. You have to, you have to earn it. And a part of that is, is building, building, building. And so I, I'm very content in the work we're doing now. And I also candidly need to finish other things in my life. Like I, I'm still getting my PhD right now. I can't finish my PhD if I run for something like that. Like I just, I have to get this done to, for the betterment of myself and my ability to serve my community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'll see, you know, there's so many, so much uncertainty out there and leadership rises in moments of uncertainty. But I, I know that things happen for a reason. I'm in the right place at the right time. And I'm going to keep giving it everything I got. Uh, well, we're almost, we're almost through, but I, I do want to ask you, how can regular people get involved in environmental issues in Florida? What can, what can the average person who, for example, is listening to this podcast right now and wondering, well, how can I get involved in an environmental issue? How can I take a stand? Any thoughts yeah. on what people can do? Of course. I mean, first of all, there's so many amazing organizations you get plugged into from the Florida Springs Council to um, Florida Conservation Voters, Sierra Club. There's so many great organizations. Some are national, some are state-based, some are hyper-local that you can get plugged into and volunteer and participate in their advocacy trainings and, and you, you know, help those, help those groups help you, right? Because these issues can be complicated and super wonky, but then organizations out there that will unpack it and make it more digestible for you. Um, and then I would also add, you got to get to know who your lawmakers are you know, ask them where they stand on these issues. You can go to myfloridahouse.gov, find my rep. It will tell you who your state house member is, who your state senator is, who your member of Congress is, and ask them where they stand You know, on these issues. Follow them on social media. Make sure they know where you're watching. I think that's really important. A lot of folks uh, don't think when they vote that there's consequences. And so you got to make sure they understand where you stand on these issues. And the last thing I'll say is everyone is an influencer in your own circle. Um, but you do have to make a commitment, right? I, I, I was connecting with some folks um, yesterday and uh, um, a husband and a wife and the wife who is such a rock star and she wants to get more involved in environmental issues. And she said once a week, she's going to commit to environmental issues. And so everyone has their own personal ecology and schedule to navigate, but you have to be intentional in saying, well, I'm going to read environmental news, you know, this day and this time, like give yourself a routine. So last minute thought, but it's something you're proactively doing. And I think that also help you be consistent in your advocacy. And now any, any last thoughts on the future, Anna? Um, uh, let's let's try to end on a note of optimism here. Uh, <laughs> uh, although there is a lot to be optimistic about, well, what do you what do you see in the future for Florida environmentally and um, and your role in it? Well, I think where I am in Orange County has a lot of great examples of optimism. You, know, despite the state of Florida preempting rights of nature, this the county the county that I live in overwhelmingly approved rights to nature 
protections for specific waterways over, you know, 60% threshold. I mean, that that is an election that is Democrats and Republicans and NPA is all voting together. Um, and then recently in Orange County, we did pass an ordinance on urban fertilizer, which again is a small piece of the bigger puzzle, but it's one of the things that the state of Florida has not yet preempted. So we were able to successfully pass that. Um, what does the ago. what does that bill say? Quickly, I, I don't remember. So it's a county ordinance to r- regulate the use of urban fertilizer. So basically, fertilizers in your yard, and the goal is that um, during very specific weather patterns. Um, you, you should not be fertilizing. It puts restrictions that try to help reduce runoff mm. when you are fertilizing your, your lawns. Which triggers um, algae blooms. Correct. Correct. It's one of the other, it's, it's a policy at a local level that has not been preempted yet. And so we just did it in Orange County. And mm. so I, I think that there is a lot to be hopeful for, but we have to translate our concerns into political power. That's, that's the only way to protect this state for generations to come. Excellent. Ana Escamani, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, Florida State Representative Ana Escamani, uh, look out for her in the future. She's a rising star in the Democratic Party and a tireless advocate for progressive causes. Thank you, Ana. Thank you. This episode of the Nature of Florida podcast was brought to you in part by the Everglades Foundation, the Felburn Foundation, the Fish and Wildlife Foundation of Florida, and Explica Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, remember to subscribe on our website, The Nature of Florida with Oscar Corral.buzzsprout.com. That's The Nature of Florida with Oscar Corral.buzzsprout.com, or find us on your favorite platform and follow us on Facebook and Instagram.